Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. And if you don't mind settling in and joining me in just a little prayer before we get started. To our holy creator, all praises to you. Praises for the carrying of the balance between mercy and accountability, between those who are judged harshly and fairly grants us grace. Our Holy One seeks out cruel judgment oppressors and deals with them accordingly. Our protector employs a power analysis that recognizes that we are all capable of being harmed and harming others. Be our guide as we hear this message today. Please let us with open hearts feel, with open minds to being challenged, and with grace hear your word moving in and through us. Amen. This was an interesting scripture to preach from this week. I find that the idea of forgiveness is super duper easy. Um, I said idea of forgiveness is super, super easy. So many of you have known that I have uh, moved to Tucson and am working there and volunteering and guest preaching at a number of the congregations down there. I've made lots of changes. I've changed my routine. I've changed the city and town that I find myself in. I'm hanging out with people that and, and doing stuff that I never thought I would do. I'm doing group fitness classes, and I hate groups, and I hate fitness. <laughs> I'm doing yoga classes, and it's hot yoga, and I hate being hot, but I'm like really adjusting to change. It's been fantastic. A lot of my sermons that you have heard me uh, preach over the last three or four years has always incorporated some idea of change into the actual message. Well, then about two weeks ago, I most definitely was um, woken up by my body letting me know, you are of an age <laughs> that is going to be a season of change for you. And then I realized that I actually am not good at change at all. And so there's the idea of change. There's the actual process of change. And somewhere in the middle is where we find ourselves, where I find myself. I feel that forgiveness, or even how we identify as Christians, is very much the same. We have the idea of who we are and what we believe, but then it then there's the actual practice of it, right? So when preparing for my ecclesiastical council in March of this year, I reviewed all of the writing that I had done. And there was a number of times that I had talked about the folks on the margin or those who are, um, you know, just not necessarily beneath us, but just those on the margins. And then it was at that time when I came to understand that perhaps I should uh, change my language or at least my view 
in hopes that folks that are reading my paper know what I'm talking about when I say that there are those who are on the margin. I found myself in all 60 plus pages of writing trying to explain the kind of loving and justice oriented perspective that I have gained not only throughout my life, but through being a United Church of Christ um, practitioner. And I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky to be surrounded by those who have supported my dreams of working with those on the margin. I've benefited from faith leaders and family that have never discouraged me from, from serving alongside those on the margins. For me, I was taught that there was never a hierarchy of who deserved God's love. But I know that that isn't the story and the experience of so many of my friends, of people that I come across in the community. When asking folks what's the difference between being uh, faithful, being religious, and being spiritual, I have found that a lot of people have grown up with a theology that has been centered around um, those on the margin. The way that they have internalized some of the messages of how we help those on the margin ends up actually being an internalized elitist language. I find myself walking down the street here in Phoenix and, it, and walking alongside those who are experiencing homelessness and paying attention to the thoughts that come across my mind. I started a new prison ministry inside Perryville, working with um, those who are um, diagnosed SMI, seriously medical ill, working in suicide watch units. And I find myself checking in with how do I approach those who are on the margins. When we read Paul's call to the Roman church, welcome to those who are in faith, I have done some research this week, and a lot of biblical scholars will say that the term weak is actually a rhetorical tactic. It's the way that Paul chose to talk to the Romans, those in the church, actually using their own language to teach them a lesson. Paul uses that language back to them and challenges them by saying, you might believe that your faith is stronger than, and than others in your community, but aren't you, the people of strong faith, supposed to welcome everyone? And he's writing this when he's noticing that there's people who are being excluded. Biblical scholar Robert Jewart says that Paul might have intended to reverse that shameful status of the weak. But I think that weak in the idea of those on the margin is actually important to clarify. So the, the insult weak of faith or weak in faith might have actually meant something different. Doesn't necessarily mean the uh, unbelief or not enough belief, because we've seen so many biblical characters throughout our scriptures like Sarah promising, to, um, laughing at God for promising her a child, or we can remember the Apostle Thomas doubting Jesus' resurrection, or even Peter when he sinks for being of little faith. So when gospel writers use the term weak differently, they seem to be solely referring to the sick people that Jesus healed. The term was actually used to describe infirmity. 
And since then, many Greek philosophers and poets have used this Greek term to refer to a people of social and religious uh, on the margins. It's another word. I just have a hard time saying it. It's inferiority. Perhaps then this is where the Roman church picked up the use of that word, that idea of weak in faith, because it was a contemporary discriminatory term that they used. The classification of weak and strong people can even be found in a lot of our language today. We can see how many are thinking about the ways that women should be viewed, what they should do with their bodies, or our LGBTQIA family members, or even those who are abled and disabled, we find weak and strong language in that often. I wonder what it is for us to look at the scripture, to look at weak faith, to look at those on the margins and start to question the ways that we use those terms. Start thinking about those terms and how they influence our actions. We have the idea and then we have the action. There is a lot of contemporary language today around growth, healing, and development. It's, it's why our self-help books are oftentimes the most popular selling category. And oftentimes you find in that language or in those books, we get stuck in that weak and strong binary. We can see on our social media that it is filled with videos, whether it be from content creators or even our own loved ones, where we are portraying weak moments or weak-minded moments. And then what does it look like for us to get better? I find that in talking with my friends who are not religious or spiritual or Christian, that uh, Growing up that way, they tend to repeat the same narrative of weak and strong, even though that that's part of the reason why they left. And now I find that when we return as a Christian society back to the things that are impacting our society now, like Christian nationalism, we're actually wiping away 50-plus years of progress. There is no weak in faith. There is no strong in faith. I want to clarify, all of the scriptures about God lifting up the lowly, identifying with the least of these, and strengthening the weak actually might refer to the conditions that the people are subjected to by others. It's not a call into who they are. It is the conditions in which they find themselves. As you heard in my introduction, and as many of you know, I'm a, a liberation uh, scholar. I like to see where there is freedom in the narrative. So I love talking about a God who opts for the poor and who opts for the oppressed. But even that distinction can fuel a type of elitism inside my own practice. And so when we approach language, when we can talk about God strengthening the weak, how do we do it without perpetrating that same antagonism, that same language that is to insult a group of people? I wonder what it would be like if even I can talk about the weak and the strong, the low and the high, the first and the last, if I and we approach these terms with a degree of suspicion 
and maybe even discernment. So that way we don't continue to scare people away because they are weak in faith. I try imagining the conversation that Paul was having with folks um, talking about that weak in faith. And I think it's kind of amusing to think that Paul may have been challenged on his usage. What would he have done when he responded to people's groans and gasps? What was his defensive ally response? Was it like, no, I mean, your weak in faith is like, it's positive. It, no offense, but... And I wonder if anybody who had been called weak in that Roman audience was unsure if they should be offended or appreciative of Paul's instructions. What I found interesting in researching for this week on, on the scripture is that this isn't the only time in the New Testament letters that Paul gives off that same energy as a new person coming to understanding what this movement is that he's helping to start. We see many times that Paul pleads and instructs us to welcome the weak and invites us to go more deeper beyond that intolerance. The Jewish annotated New Testament clarifies the instruction that Paul gives is actually stronger than merely accepting and welcoming. That to welcome the weak is to carry the sense of bringing somebody in to take a hold of them, to go and get them and bring them in. Because we see throughout the scriptures time and time again, and even when we get to join at this table together, that we have been welcomed to the table of Christianity and that our love feasts have adopted everyone and everyone has equal status. We say this in our messages all of the time within the United Church of Christ. All are welcome to the table. From the beginning of our Christian tradition, the Holy Spirit has empowered communities to build space for diversity and transformation. And then Paul reminds the Roman church that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And that Christ is the Lord of the dead and the living and so he employs more language techniques, more metaphors of the Lord of the household. And Paul asks us, who are we to pass judgment on each other? Who are we to say, you are not welcome to the table? He actually doesn't use the typical Greek words that we're familiar with for slave. He uses other words that encompasses how we all are in our social strategies together. Paul's careful with his language. And being careful with his language, he aligns an overarching theme to the letters of the church that we are all one family. Paul says to us in this scripture, whose story have you been incorporated into? Is it the story of Caesar? Or is it the story of the one who was crucified and raised from the dead? For if Christ, the Lord of all life and death, how is it that we can eat together if that's who you say you follow? I guess another way to put this is whose household is it that we belong to? If we choose to belong to Caesar's and any representation in modern day time of Caesar's, 
then to whose household do we belong? Who do we eat our food with? Who do we invite to our table? Paul advocates throughout scriptures, in particular the one today, for us to be non-judgmental. And that would have been a challenging thing to hear then as it is now. It's not just challenging to the Roman authorities, but it was to the entire culture. Going back to Robert Jewart, he says that Paul's instructions to avoid judging each other is actually going against the grain of the Roman culture. Judgment and predetermination was part of the educational system aimed to encourage informed critical judgments of people, of places, of things. And it was also countercultural to the Second Temple Jerusalem, because at that time, the Second Temple Jerusalem said whose community life was centered on the process of judging which actions were consistent with the law and which ones were not. Today, we tend to find ourselves being non-judgmental as a highest virtue. I'm not going to judge the people who voted for that person. I'm not going to judge the people who believe in that particular religion. But I challenge us to say that perhaps we even do judge when we don't think that we are. And when I talk about judgment in particular in this scripture and the way that I interpreted it, it's about expectations. When we judge others, we subject them to our expectations. And sometimes that results in disdain when they don't measure up to them. If we were to not judge people based on our expectations, then that frees people, allowing them to live without our objections. Let me give you an example. Back in 2013, Pope Francis uh, was quoted uh, having a, a small little speech before he boarded the plane, and he was asked about the LGBT issue. He said, if someone is gay and searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? But if we were to actually look at the discrimination against gay people in our Catholic church or in, in our other churches, we can actually recognize that the Pope's non-judgmental approach was really incredibly ineffective. There's something about just saying the words and not following through on the actions. There's a carelessness that can fester beneath each of us when we profess that we are non-judgmental, but then set up these expectations for people. If we refuse to judge or even condemn the identities or lifestyles of people who discriminate against us, and we also refuse to judge and condemn those who don't meet our expectations, then where does that leave us? How are we truly living? In our personal lives, in the life of our community, it's hard sometimes to examine where we have to draw the line between a hospitable, non-judgmental behavior, to change our mindset, and then really to change our actions. So where is it that we are judging things in life? And let's start with ourselves, right? What about your life do you judge? Now, what would happen if you change your expectation of that?
How does forgiveness come into your life? I've been doing a series on Christian nationalism through the Arizona Faith Network over the last, uh, well, since June. And we're going to be continuing the program on religious nationalism all the way up until election. And it's hard to sit there and, and see the beauty of the gospel and to see people who have turned the gospel words into something that will allow them to judge. It doesn't make sense to me. Because I believe that the scripture is about how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to change? And how do we put our ideas into complete action? Paul asked that question several times to us. Why do you pass judgment on your sibling? So as I'm sitting in those Christian nationalism groups, I'm saying to myself, how do I not pass judgment on the person who believes different than, differently than me? Growing up, there, was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of people that would always go around saying, oh, only God can judge me. And I, I thought that was great until I started examining the scripture this week a little bit differently. Maybe the only God judges me originates from sayings like Paul said today. And it can be liberating to help us resist people's objections to us. But sometimes we can find ourselves abusing the idea to evade accountability when we are the ones that do the judging. What does it really mean to say only, only God can judge me? What does it mean to be held accountable to God and not feel shame? How can we allow ourselves to be open up, to be guided by an all-living, um, embracing Jesus who says we are going to reject those moral categories imposed by empire and we are going to forgive starting with ourselves. I've also noticed there are a lot of churches that are in very much in the same spot that this church is now deciding what is the future. And in some of these progressive spiritual communities, they've tried to move into a new way of displaying hospitality. How do you welcome people to the table? How do you serve those who are on the margins or weak in faith? Some churches just upgrade their website. Others upgrade their, upgrade their website and then bring in ushers who are welcoming and friendly. And it really is playing a dice game because you don't know who wants to be welcomed and who wants to be alone. What kind of message is the pastor giving that day that's going to touch some people and others it's going to offend? We find ourselves in the in-between spaces again. How do we put our ideas out there of the church we want to be, and then how do we show the world that that's what we actually are? What kind of people, what kind of church do we want to be here at Church of the Beatitudes? And then how do we become this new thing? How do we shed the old practices and the rituals and, and, and heal from the things that have happened in the past to dream and build new ways of being children of God, of welcoming people to the table, 
of changing our expectations so that way we don't find ourselves being judgmental. I've been thinking a lot about this church over the summer and what your future is, and I can't but help think of, um, you know, we have this wonderful uh, facilities manager here on, on campus, Cesar. And him and I have spent countless hours talking about the planting and the cultivating of not just the, the, the trees and the bushes and the agave and stuff you see, but it's also about what does it mean to plant and cultivate community here. And he gets to see the groups that come in and use the facility and, and go beyond. And it brings me hope because this campus and this congregation is so opening and so welcoming and so gracious to everyone that I believe that this particular beloved community can actually put the idea into practice. So beloved community, let's go gardening this week. Let us plant the seeds and grow the seeds that are of love and curiosity and of action. I invite each of us to speak out when we notice harm being done I invite each of us to speak out when we notice that we are the ones doing the harm. I invite us to invite God into our souls to help us sprout up new possibilities, to grow into new ways of understanding forgiveness and for understanding the way that we welcome people to the table. And I'm here with you in this journey, even if it is from two hours away in Tucson. I'm here to help us grow. And I'm here to invite you to hold me accountable when you hear me saying something and then my actions doing something different. Ask me, what are my expectations? What is the language that is guiding me? Because that's what today's scripture, one of the many things that today's scripture is about. How are you using the language to inform your actions? How are you living in the dream? And how are you living into the world? Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online dash giving Beatitudes Radio empowering people to enrich society